everyone and welcome back to the Mind the Culture podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking all things Black women and our health, um, some of the misconceptions, myths, and just things that we don't know um, about our health and how to look after ourselves. Today, I'm joined by my sis, Miss Mamusu Nyande. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Didi. How are you? I'm good, girl. I'm good. It's like the back to work, but the long weekend was long, but it was short at the same time. But I guess we have to keep grinding. Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> so, please introduce yourself. Tell us who is Mamusu, who is Nyandebo. Are they the same? Two different people? Is it your alter ego? Tell us. Um, Yandebo can't be my alter ego because everything I, I want to do bad, I do it as myself already. So <laughs> <laughs> there is no need for an alter ego. I think Yandebo is more of a professional side of me uh-huh. than my everyday life. Um, but my name is Mama Sukubanyande. I am a daughter of um, Sierra Leonean parents. So my parents, um, Matthew and Josephine. I've been living in Australia for, let's say, 17 years now. So I did my primary um, high school and university education in um, Australia. Um, I currently work as a project officer with Morella Community Centre, which is under the Salisbury Council umbrella. And I am a um, pro-Black person. I support Black, especially Black women, because I think our voices are very underrated Mm -hmm. and not represented as that of um, our white counterparts and then Mm. it also comes down to me talking about community um, development and health as well and how um, the voices of black people can be represented and the policies that directly impact us but those are never put into consideration when policies are being made so I'm a bit everywhere here and there but (laughs) my main focus my main drive is just um, ensuring that our voices are reflected in the places that it's needed and don't forget, you buy black. Like, you have literally, I don't even know what the word is, but you actually are consistent. Like, you know, after there was all the Black Lives Matter protests and the height of it all, and everybody was like, buy black, you know, support black businesses. Since you've, like, not even yeah. fallen I short. I wagon. I've stayed on it. I'm really proud of how consistent I've been. But at the same time, I think a lot of people make it harder than it is. A lot mm-hmm. of the things that I buy on a day-to-day, I can get it from black women businesses, so why not do that? When mm-hmm. I have an event I want to go to and I um, go on my Instagram and I see top 10 um, people that I'm following are black brands and mm-hmm. they're all within Australia, why not just buy from them? Okay, the things might be expensive, but then also African material is expensive. African culture is expensive. So I don't mind putting my money into it. And I've now seen it as an opportunity to um, purchase black luxury because anything over $200 is luxury for me. Yes. <laughs> it's luxury. So when I buy black brands and it's over $200, I now treat those items as my luxury pieces because I've just made a decision for myself that I'm not going to um, contribute to the wealth of why I'm luxury brands. I'm not, I'm not just going to join that bandwagon. My money is not going to make a difference to them but I'm definitely aware that my contribution to the black businesses goes into contributing to our, or to our, to our collective wealth. 
and mm-hmm. also provides opportunity for black women to also expand and black businesses to expand and reach a um, higher scale in business. Yes, pay them what they're worth because I think we always do that. We always be like, oh, like give me that sister yeah. discount, friend discount, family discount. But I don't when you're going, so. I, I occasionally fall victim and I do that. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. like, I do it for that I know, and I'm trying to stop that habit because even it's the same thing when people do it to me where they will try to pay me less than I deserve for work um, that I am equipped for. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah can't do that so if i if i want to be paid what i'm worth i'm going to ensure i'm paying those i hire the services what they're worth if they're doing a sale on the off and they tell me oh we can't have a sale i'm not going to say no to it <laughs> <laughs> but if you give me a quote and say that's what i'm charging i am i'm trying to put myself in a um in a mindset why i am inclined not to question that money and yeah. just pay it off especially if they're doing a good job as well so if you want you're not doing a good job that's what can question it but mm. if you're giving me money's worth, there's no problem there. Yeah. Well, before we digress too much um, <laughs> away from women's issues, um, I wanted to ask you, at least for myself, why I wanted to talk about Black women's issues is because I think I've just been consuming a lot of media, whether it's your post. Um, there was last two weeks ago, I listened to an episode by Fufu and Tibbs. They had a doctor on there um, and she was talking about like health and in the multicultural community, especially Africans, how, you know, we just don't really access health the way we're supposed to access it. Um, And then even just myself, like thinking about, it's always just about dieting. That's the only kind of like the end where you go when it comes to health, but it doesn't, or it doesn't have anything else around it. Or if it's like, you know, about your period or contraceptives, that kind of thing. But that's it. So um, why is it that you want to talk about Black women's bodies? Why did you want to come on Mind the Culture and, you know, this be the first episode that we do together? Besides the fact that um, I am. I, I love <laughs> I love Mind the Culture. Um, and I've been listening every time an episode comes out, I'm there. It's, yes. it's one of my favorite podcasts to listen to on my drive to work. It provokes a lot of thoughts. So when Didi reached out and said she wanted to discuss black women's health, this is a topic I'm, I'm extremely passionate about because one, I'm a black woman and two, I love health and well-being. And I think in the midst of um, the pandemic, a lot of us recognize how um, um, access to healthcare is really disproportionate um, between cultures and races, mm. especially in the US, but we've been seeing here in Australia with the indigenous community and also our white community, then those of us from multicultural backgrounds, how mm-hmm. a lot of us have been accessing that. I recall when I got my endometriosis di- diagnosis, it has been because I had finally chosen to change general practitioners. For right. the past 10, 15 years, I've been going to this one practitioner who's been aware of my severe period pain. He had not one flagged the fact that it could have been endometriosis. Instead, he dismissed my feelings, pushed it to the side, and just kept giving me painkillers. It was until I chose to leave him, mm. that's, when my, that's when I got diagnosed. And it's crazy when I shared my story on social media and I spoke to family friends, a lot of my aunties, a lot of my friends did not know they could leave their general health practitioners. They thought they were stuck with them for the rest of their lives. And I think I felt, (laughs) I think I felt like that for a while, or maybe I was just lazy to the idea of having to move my documents all the way to different facilities in a different center. Mm -hmm. But it's like, 
a lot of us are not even aware of the system that was built for us to even thrive. Like yeah. this is already there. We don't have to recreate it. These opportunities that we can take advantage of and use it to the best of our abilities. So um, I am definitely passionate about women's health. And I think this conversation goes, will help go um, a long way into unpacking why we have all these negative stereotypes when it comes to accessing healthcare and how can we debunk some of the myths on um, black women who do access healthcare. Why mm. should we listen to instead of pushed aside due to colonialism discrimination racism and the ideology that black men don't feel pain hi my name is mama Sinyande. i feel pain wow I feel, so yeah and you know when you talk about the gp thing one thing that i really took from i'll keep talking about that for and tibbs podcast because it was really really um insightful is the fact that at least for myself, I can say I never paid attention to the bio of your GP. And that's what the doctor on there said. She said that if you're experiencing a certain thing or like concerned about something, like read what that doctor's like specialist area is because they're more likely than to provide you the better care because they're more knowledgeable, even though they're just the, uh, a GP and it's not like you're going to see a specialist, but at least do that for yourself like do that homework to make sure the person that you're going to see is actually well versed and yeah i was like oh shit i didn't even think about that like and i think for even us african people as a culture we never go to the first person we see in the market we always go deep into the market to see who has the best price we never just buy from the first um salesperson mm. we see and i think that mentality needs to be taken into the way we access um healthcare we yeah. should not just go to the one person that's been assigned to us we should <laughs> use that mentality into digging deeper and finding what works for us best and find a practitioner that one is culturally appropriate and is able to provide you a safe space for you to be vulnerable and for you to express what's going on in your life Mm. Now, talk to me about when you said, I'm Mama Sunyande and I feel pain. Because I was reading an article about how a lot of Black women have this like misinformed perception that they have a higher tolerance of pain than white people do. You know, they, there's various articles and it was talking about how medical students like you know, medical students <laughs> about to be your doctor is saying things like, you know, black people's nerve endings are less sensitive than white people. So obviously we don't feel pain. Black people's skin is thicker than white people's skin, so we can tolerate more. Um, and then when you look at the data, like there's this study that was done and less black people were actually given pain medication after surgery because of that implicit racial bias that, you know, they're tough or like they're built different. They can handle more pain. They can tolerate suffering, basically. Um, when I say my name is Mama So and I feel pain, I think I've started saying that now because I wanted to unpack my own implicit biasness that I've placed on myself and my own identity. And the mm. fact that um, I think colon colonization and also um, living in a country that um, benefits from the disadvantage of many other people, I think just inherently you become numb to certain things. And this is through what other people have told you. So it's right. like, you know, we grew up with this ideology that 
a black strong black woman. That's the myth and that's the identity in place of so many of us from such a young age. And when we cry, we're then seen as weak. It's like, no, you have to be the strong black woman. Yeah. And I think that has been passed on into medical institutions and identities. And then you look at the fact that um, throughout slavery, when black women's bodies were being used to um, now have several medical trials on, Mm-hmm. And the fact that our body, our skin tone doesn't react immediately to impact that was seen as strength, but it's like, no, my body reacts differently. Right. It was just last during the midst of Black Lives Matter that we recognized that a black people's skin tone were not even reflected in the medical textbooks in regards to how mm-hmm. our skin reacts. So because there's Wasn't that, that, wait, there was a kid or someone who was a young guy, a young yeah. African-American guy who started doing that where he was now taking pictures of African um, people, African complexion skin and how they react to certain things like, um, like, um, um, also, not even also, I'm sorry, asthma. asthma? Mm. So like all these different skin conditions. And then like people, when you have eczema? a rash, eczema, that's Hey, I was like, asthma, you're, asthma, you're breathing. Eczema. <laughs> So reaction like excellent then like when because I get heat rash and how that looks on my skin is different I don't get red mm. and you mm. don't immediately see the spots but my body feels it so he's been trying to um, collect those documentations that can be reflected into the medical textbook and that's for America that's I mean for what's happening here in Australia like I was fortunate to do with a talk a few years ago with medical students um, with all of the universities in South Australia around representation and the importance okay. of having cultural safety um, frameworks within your um, the services that provide. Mm. And there were just te- like the questions I got from the students. I'm just like, like, am I the stupid one or are they stupid? What did they ask you? It, it was just like, it was just oblivious questions. I'm like, huh? <laughs> like, people come this 2020? <laughs> <laughs> 2019 2018 and I'm like what's going on and it was so unfortunate that a lot of them were asking um me questions around oh there is the stigma or there's this um idea that black people don't feel pain but I I don't believe that and, and there was this girl who asked me can I try some uh, first thing first can I try I am not an experiment for nobody but the holy ghost wow. so please don't do that and and it was in that moment that I recognized how dysfunctional our medical um, our medical system is, and also how dysfunctional a lot of our systems are in Australia. And um, within that, like I've ever since then I've been going back every year, and mm. I've been working in collaboration with other um, young African people to just try to um, change the narrative and have conversations with these medical students who are now going to be our medical practitioners in the near future to ensure that they are culturally aware and one that they are also going out of the way to do their own research because the education system is not providing that anymore. No. It's, it never has. So it's not providing that. You have to take that extra step for you to do training or for you to go out of your way, read books and be able to ensure that you are not a racist practitioner. And the thing is, people think these things are just in the past. Like, you know, you talk about Henrietta Lacks, you talk about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And then recently I saw um, there was this, he's coined the father of modern gynecology, Marion Sims. I don't know if you saw that post about him doing like research on enslaved black women without anesthetics, without um, proper like tools and they were just as test subjects, like a rat, like a proper lab rat. And then you say, oh, okay, that was blah, 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 many years ago. Wasn't it just yesterday, those two French doctors were saying we should go to Africa 
and test the COVID vaccine. And it's the same thing they did for HIV. It's the same thing that was done during the Ebola crisis. So over and over again, black bodies continue to be used as experiments to test out new medicine that if we can survive it, the rest of the world can survive it. I think there was such a shock around Western countries on why Africa did not have such a large increase of the um, COVID virus. Mm. And people were shocked by the time, are you trying to kill us? Why are you so shocked <laughs> that we're safe? I don't understand. This is the first time in a long time that Africa has been safe from a big virus and a big mm. illness. What, um, what Ebola did for West Africa is still affecting sure. the country to this day. Yeah. And now in recent months, we saw there's a new virus, um, there's a new chain of the Ebola in Guinea. So it's mm. like, if we don't even maintain that properly, that could wipe out the whole population of Guinea. So it's yeah. like we have, we continue, we continue to be lab rats for a lot of um, Western medicine. Mm. And it's really unfortunate that our government doesn't, doesn't even help with those cases where they're just looking for- They're receiving the money. Money. And that's about it. The money. And the thing is, like, you know, people say, oh, let's test the these things in Africa because they're strong, they don't feel pain, they're resilient, such and such. But I'll go back to I think you said it before, like that is something that we have now flipped and we've mm-hmm. taken it in internally, and we think that we are strong, we are yeah. resilient, we are, you know, almost impenetrable by all of yeah. these diseases to the point where people are saying black people are immune from COVID. And no. there were so many, <laughs> so many that, you that know. That was a good rumor though, because it made us, a lot of us feel good. It's one virus that will not come and kill us. Yeah. But I feel like that also speaks to how we respond um, or just access healthcare in general because we have that mentality where we are super strong you only go to the doctor when it's like near death kind of situation and we don't educate ourselves about just general health and well-being you know we don't do annual checkups um even when it comes to like sexual health like i don't know how many kids even think about you know how many kids even think about these things beyond just like oh i don't want to use protection because it's not cool blah 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 but it's your body it's your body and it's like do we just devalue ourselves to that degree or you really think you're that strong that those things won't hurt you and i know it's it's important to be resilient it's important to have strength but i just wonder what you think about this narrative we've created for ourselves where we feel like you know, we are the superheroes of things that, um, you know, we can just fight off anything, but we don't, but then that means that we don't take preventative measures to better health. Yeah. Yeah, I think on a, um, on a personal level, I think even that narrative alone has crippled me and a lot of women into, um, constantly feeling the need to have ourselves together in the sense Mm. where we're not showing vulnerability if you've been constantly seen as a strong black woman or the strong black person somebody who is resilient to everything you've gone through and that is part of my identity one or another but it's not all that i am there Mm. has to be room for us to be vulnerable there has to be room for us to be weak and uno we can create those spaces for ourselves if we continue to hold on to a narrative that um holds us as strong people 
and that's all that we are, then we've, yeah. we've, like, we've denied ourselves opportunities for us to be vulnerable. Like I know going through, going through my endometriosis process has been one of the best things that could have ever happened to me because it allowed mm-hmm. me the time for me to cry. Like mm-hmm. I remember when uh, I had my first operation and um, fortunately everything went well. And mm-hmm. I remember when I was leaving my, um, the gyno, after surgery, so, oh, would you like some fake number? Yes, double dose me, please. I'm not pain. And she's like, oh, I thought you were good. I, mean, I don't know who you think I am, but I, I, I'm not good. Right. I'm not good. I am in a lot of pain. She's like, oh, because um, when you woke up, you didn't yell anything. I'm like, oh, I'm, like why does yelling have to now mean I'm in pain? Just because I didn't yell doesn't mean I'm not in pain. I am in a lot of pain. Please dose me up. And it was after that I started having a conversation with my gynecologist. Because it's like, I told her, you, I don't know what medical school you went to, but that comment you made um, after surgery was really hurtful because you dismissed my feelings um, as a mm. human being. The fact that you've created an idea in your head that people who look like me do not feel pain. And just because I did not scream doesn't mean I didn't feel pain. Maybe right. I was uncomfortable in stating that I felt pain because I did not want to be seen as weak. So yeah. for you saying that alone crippled me. So How me and my guy. Um, she was shocked by it, but she sucked it up. We've had several conversations ever since. Okay. And it's been a good opportunity for her to grow and also for her to do her own personal learning. But mm-hmm. I think what's also problematic in that sense is we are constantly in a position that we're always teaching people and it's exhausting. Right. It's exhausting to always be the teacher, to, to be the one who is trying to provide resources to other people. So it got to a point where I told her, um, you're the guy, no, I'm the patient. If you want to do further readings in this, go ahead and go. Oh, and you went that me. deep into it. Yeah, because if you're going to be providing me my care, I want you to be equipped with an adult. And like, even when I go for my appointments, we have conversations even outside of my health because it now passes down onto your mentor because my, my GP, my gyno, and my um, therapist, they're all like one big sister circle now. So they're okay. all sharing everything. I was just to provide that holistic treatment for me mm-hmm. and go into all those conversations. But I think um, what I've been able to do has worked and not a lot of people have that confidence to do that. Or no people even feel the strength or the ability that they can speak up for themselves when they feel like they're not getting the help, the care that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, but going back to your question about this narrative of black women being strong, it's a really problematic narrative. It's one that continues to hinder um, our growth and our abilities to be vulnerable for us to feel safe. And um, we are the only ones who can really change that narrative. We're the only ones who can shift it. And we're yeah. the only ones who can ensure that it's not passed on to the next generation of women who look like us. And I think like when I, my passion project, as you know, is always around mental health. And yeah. I think that's the one where it even extends beyond just women, but especially men, we do that. We are super strong. What is anxiety? What is depression? Um, you know, that just doesn't exist in our vocabulary. Even if you've lived overseas in the Western world for X amount of years, it doesn't exist. And I think for myself, I've always been an advocate, but after this pandemic, like, oh, thank God I found my therapist because she's amazing. But I was like, what is this? Like I had panic attacks and I was like, hey, God, I was just, I was, I was happy to be the one on this person thing is that no and i was like i just wanted to be the advocate i wanted to be the one to hold up the poster not to be the experience (laughs) no it it is different it's different and the black lives matter movement the covid pandemic has i think has been one of the biggest blessings for our generation 
because mm. it had it would basically open up the Pandora's box to so many other problems in the system. Yeah. And it's allowed a lot of us who have voices to hold our institutions accountable. And mm. even those who want to speak up, but the fact that people are now going to have a way to educate themselves so they can be aware of what mm-hmm. the right is. Like I had several young girls um, reach out to me that they even went through their workplace code of conduct to ensure that everything was right. And some of them are even making changes within their workplaces. Wow. I'm at- Look, I'm not speaking up for ourselves in a very long time because I think when you come here as a migrant and a refugee, you're just privileged. You just feel that sense of, I need mm-hmm. to behave. I need to fit into this. I need to ensure that they know that I am grateful for this opportunity, that we, we tolerate more than we should. And we let we ourselves get gaslit in some ways because yeah. if you think about it, all of these systems and structures that are in place were because white people felt that their pain and their experiences are validated. So they did the due diligence, they made the occupational conducts, the health and safety committees, the workplace relations, blah, 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 blah. The law. (laughs) All of those things because they recognize the importance of self. Mm-hmm. And it's just so interesting that we come into it, even in our own countries, at the very minimum, we don't recognize our value to be able to create these systems to help us and support us when we are being mistreated. And then when mm-hmm. we come to a foreign place that has these things in place, we don't feel like we should be able to access them. We don't feel like we have the right to access them. So it, it's just like this perpetual cycle of just inferiority complex where we just yeah yeah and I think you're right people are now getting woke if people still use that term maybe I'm old now (laughs) we're all woke we're all woke and I think it's like I said before it's been one of the biggest blessings for our generation and it's going I think a lot of us want to keep referring to this the older we get because it was a wake-up call for a lot of us to be aware of the institutions that we work within and also be aware of what our rights is. Like, mm. or I have, I have not accessed legal services in the past year the way I have ever mm. in my life. Like I was going back to back with a lot of my loyal friends. Okay. I need to understand this and this and this and this. So I know why I stand for certain things. Mm. I need you to read through my work contracts just to ensure that a girl is not being gaslit or there's nobody um, like setting fire. Wow. Setting and then I had so many other girls who are reaching out to me for advice, legal advice. I'm not the one for it, but I can connect to people who do that work mm-hmm. so you are protected or so you're aware of your rights. It's just like I had to go through our constitution all over again for me to just read through areas that are blurred where mm-hmm. I know racism and discrimination is okay within our institution. So I know where I stand because even if you go to court and now they bring that up in the constitution, it's like we did nothing wrong. This fits um, section, this mm-hmm. and this and that. So it's like taking that extra step, that extra initiative to understand the foundation of the foundations of this country and where you stand in it and also what areas that needs needs to be amended. Yeah. And I'm a huge, huge believer in that. Like me and consumer affairs are best friends because oh, I know girl. I know <laughs> You're not the one thought. to play with. <laughs> Even if I don't know anything about the law, I will make something up. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> oh my gosh but um 
I also wanted to talk about like aside from colonization, aside from I guess our own perceptions of healthcare, what do you think are some of the barriers for us as black women for looking after our health the way that we should be, being more knowledgeable and being preventative? Yeah. I think a big thing comes down to culture and the pressure that is placed on black women in the sense where there is a lot of expectations on who we are and who we should be. And in, in that context, I think a lot of women um, have had their legs clipped from underneath them where they, they're crippled mm. and, and it prevents them from doing what's needed. So it's like when I was a teenager and I was being sexually active, I was very fortunate to be in a context where my mother was the one who took me to the GP to go and get um, checked up and also for her. Wow. Me that we're going to put her family plan. We're going to have no teen, teen pregnancy in my house. That's not happening. Mm. So I was very fortunate in that context, but not many young girls had that. So it's like our families do this thing where they try to shield, where they actually shield our, our daughters from the world, but they forget to do the same for our sons. And then we, mm-hmm. are, we are basically left naked to the world. And when something bad happens, it's then still blamed on us. So it's like, no, you messed up by never teaching me A, B, C, and D. You mm-hmm. messed up by never opening up to me. You messed up by never talking to your son and ensuring that the same lessons you were given to me was also being given to your son to ensure that he's not getting me pregnant. So there's and an intergenerational would, gap in communication. There's a big intergenerational gap. And our generation, I think, is the one that's going to shift a lot of that because a lot of us know better. Right. It's unfortunate for those who don't know better and they might choose to continue that um, generational curse, but that's between mm-hmm. them and their ancestors. But for those of us who are very much aware of um, where we are and also who we want the next generation to be, the conversations around sex and um, mental health are going to be big for the next generation coming up here in Australia. Um, when it goes into accessing um, healthcare, language is a big barrier, not, not, not necessarily mm-hmm. for our generation, our parents generation and those who are older than them like you go into um, a medical facility and you can't speak the language properly and you don't have translators with you if you now have a translator this could be your husband or your child and if you're not in an abusive relationship there's right. you, want you can't discuss that because your husband or your child is in that room one mm. you don't want your husband to beat you up when you go home and two you don't want your child to know that this is what you're experiencing and then if your child does know your child shares, so your child now becomes the problematic one for sharing that information. Now you and your child have been ostracized from your family, but also your community. So language is a big barrier there. Mm. And then it also comes with awareness. We are not talking about our health the way that we should. We're not open and we're not being dis- we're not disclosing certain things. Like when I um, announced I had endometriosis, I had about... 36 women reached out to me and said they had the same thing in Adelaide alone. Okay. And these wow. are women that I knew, like older women, younger women, women my age, and also younger girls. And I was like, what, why did, and I, I'm one of my aunties, I'm auntie, wait, wait, you, you have this? Really? She's like, yes. And I'm like, hey, you didn't think to even shouting it from the rooftop so I can know, so that I can just hear Endometriosis in my head and let it be floating there? Like, let me just know something like this exists. Because wow. when I first heard it, I'm like, what kind of big ass English word is this? Mm-hmm. I have to go and Google and I, my um, gyno explain everything to me. But it's just like the fact that we we make our health so um, secretive. Like, yes. there's nothing wrong with keeping your details personal. But I think it's really important for you to share your experiences with how you're dealing with what you have. Mm. I'm not saying go and give your medical records to the world, but no. being 
open enough to disclose what you what you're dealing with allows and creates opportunities for other people to relate to you when uh, for other people to recognize that they're not alone yeah and and versus post like i am in constant conversation with so many girls who have now had that operation that i endured and we are now we've all created like a network of black sisters where we're checking in on each other and it's been wonderful to see like with the fact that they've legalized medical marijuana in australia even though it's not going to be available to um sometime next year but all that information has been shared through the group chat some girls that oh i'm already on it but don't tell the government hold on hold on hold on before you be careful with that one because i was in this is totally left but i was in this training and this lady was telling us about a chinese student that she she's a nurse and she like cared for her and the chinese student she had like a lot of pressure culturally um obviously through med school and this girl had one joint of weed she became psychotic she became psychotic so please just be careful with this <laughs> so we can't and then like well what people are doing people's lab my once you're being safe in the way you choose to engage in your extracurriculum activities that's all on you but it's like for yes. women to now be participating in all these surveys that and the metrosis essay and even this local government is doing around collecting data on women's experiences and how women have advocated for the fact that marijuana has been helping them manage the pain has been phenomenal and it's been part of the reason why marijuana is even legalized at the moment mm. because of women who women like us who are current who are either taking it or even open to taking marijuana yeah. to just how we can better manage our pain because you don't want to be having an operation every year to remove the tissues around your ovaries. You don't want to be enjoying mm. that. So one substance able to help you out, give it a shot. And I just want to touch on that when you're talking about women, you know, learning more, being part of this, the research that's out there. We don't do that. Like, oh, we don't, we we don't die, do that. We don't like, like even aside from participating in a clinical trial, just those surveys. And I feel like it's a lot of work. (laughs) But that's where the gap of information will be. And it's a big thing. I know I have to force myself every time I see a survey around um, any sort of medical illness or medical treatment. Okay, let me just put in my information and be a part of it. But a lot of our people are not going to be doing that. And I think we need to start changing that and let people know that you are actually impacting the wider community more by participating in the service. You don't yeah. have to do because that's pushing it for us. We're not going to be. I mean, that one I think is traumatic, but at the same time, if we are going to have validated results and data on Black people, you're going to have to. Someone else can do it, but yeah. it's not me. The, you, you can too, girl. Do it. <laughs> I, worked, I worked in clinical trials, so. I, I remember. Yeah, I've you seen do it. Something? Did you participate, Didi? Did you see this? Is no. <laughs> see? You have the same fear that a lot of us have. What if I die? <laughs> you know. What are they putting in me? <laughs> what if I die? You know, because I've I've thought about it, and a lot of time the money is so appealing. My, oh, five thousand dollars for for what? No. Uh, what happens afterwards? And I that's know. like it's aftermath that scares me more than anything. Because like, how long is this drug gonna be in my system? How is it gonna affect me growing up? How is it gonna affect me aging? Because there's so much uh, mm. <laughs> the things that are in our medicines, the things that are in our food 
is leading to people go, having Alzheimer's at the age of 30. It's people having dementia, you know? There's a lot of suspicious mm-hmm. stuff here. So when you see the stats, it's, ah, let me stay out of this one. I would do all the service I can do. The <laughs> clinical trials, uh, trials are not for me, myself, and I. I'm good. But isn't I'm it good. just I, because... I, I, you what? I can answer all the questions that I want, but you're not injecting <laughs> my body. It's not, we're not doing that. I think it's just a testament to the history of science and, medic- and medicine, like from a racial lens, because white people historically haven't had their bodies used as test. Um, and they're intrigued by it. Yeah, but not even just that. It's like if you look at the history of it, all of the advances have been because somebody else's body was used as a test to benefit your body. So you feel like whatever is being produced is safe for me because at the very like premise of them doing those experiments um, is to help those broader populations. It's not like they were doing, you know, these experiments to go to the plantations and save the slaves when they were sick. No. So... Can we really blame black people for being like, uh, I don't want to do clinical uh, trials? And I am so happy we're using this one race card as, as something to cover our ass. Because, <laughs> uh, Not the race card. card. <laughs> you can use this race card. Well, there's a discrimination card. You can use it really well to protect ourselves because it's the only thing we really have to rely on. And at the end of the day, the medical institution has never really been for us, especially Western medicine. Mm. It's never really been for us. So in that context, why would I put myself in a position that people who look like me have done in the past, who were never recognized, or instead the bodies were dumped into rivers or buried into shallow graves, and no respect was ever given to that individual. So why would I now want to do that to myself and willingly too? And even if I'm going to be compensated for it, mm you still feel like a form a form of betrayal to those who came before you and those who were stolen off ships and all of that. There's just a lot of psychological um, trauma that goes into engaging in such a practice. And at the end of the day, we are going to, we have to keep looking out for ourselves in the best possible way that we can. Yeah. And I think like your point about the secrecy, I think it's also very important um, intergenerationally for people to really talk about those um what is the word like inherited or things that are quite common in your family line like we know a lot of one is heart high blood pressure um heart ish where's my scientific brain it's gone heart disease <laughs> so it happens when you haven't been to uni in a long time <laughs> yes all of those things like we just say oh yes like you know your grandfather had diabetes shan 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 but Uh, people don't like let's go into details when did he die and then you also check yourself because also some things and this is what we don't talk about is all the other not so normative diseases yeah. when it comes to intellectual disability yes. nobody's talking about autism mm-hmm. nobody's talking about adhd mm-hmm. nobody's talking about your young person having schizophrenia mm-hmm. 
no one is having those it's okay yeah he had high blood pressure he was just eating too much yeah. um meat chan chan that's cool we'll talk about that one but what about all those other diseases that maybe we couldn't put a name on because it's not in our languages but now that we have got the language for it and we're aware that these symptoms were familiar in our family contexts why aren't we just close and like I know when I went back in 2019 I was having a conversation with uh, my grandparents because we he wasn't a direct relative of ours but he was a guy in a village who um during the civil war got shot um mm -hmm. and like it just passed he lost an ear from a gunshot mm -hmm. and he was mentally unstable ever since then and it led into several episodes of god knows what but he just declined drastically and he lived he was he lived till he was 75 surprisingly and it was incredible that he had lived that long mm. um and when he died i'm just like so what was the real deal behind it? it's like homeboy was suffering from ptsd every mm. time he heard anything go off it triggered him the fact that um the civil war now took away um his home his family he was the only mm. one who was and he was now left alone. People were now poking fun of him because he didn't have an ear. All of that escalated to the mm. point where he just got to a position where madness was the only option available for him. And when you put all those other contributing factors to it, mm -hmm. you can't blame him for the condition that ended up with. And we, I think even when we look at the African context and we see people on the streets who, um, who, who were mentally and so we just say they're mad. Mm -hmm just diagnose them with madness without fully understand the context of what illness that they're experiencing and when um one of the biggest disadvantages of our country is the fact that we don't have government who have sense in in the context where they don't even care for the average person so why are they going to care for somebody with a disability instead they will either swipe you to the side when a special mm -hmm. guest is coming so the country seems clean um, but outside of that, there is no care whatsoever for people with disabilities within our countries. And that has now put a lot of us in this mentality where we see people with, with mental or physical disabilities as less than, and mm -hmm. we question their ability to be in certain spaces or for them to you know, occupy certain spaces mm -hmm. based on that disability. And there's no opportunities for the average man. How is there going to be an opportunity for somebody with a disability? No. 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 And there's so much denial. And I think that's the oh, really God. scary part is because rather than you, and it's hard, like it's very difficult to accept it, but at some point you have to think of the care of your child and you have to say, okay, let me not ignore these signs that I'm seeing at six months, one year, four years. So that when we, he gets to school is when we're now trying to intervene and that goes back to our mental literacy and just having that openness to really yeah. understand that we're not immune to these things. You always like to label and be like, oh, that's a white person's disease. Uh -uh. But we got it too. We got it too. Yeah, so I know when, when I was like, talking to my parents, I'm like, so what's our family illnesses? Like, please start naming them so I know what we've got and what we don't have. So mm -hmm. I know um, arthritis is a big thing for my family and um, poor eyesight. Those are two mm. things. So as soon as I turned 18, and then I, I had a family friend, we weren't blood related, but she died from breast cancer. As mm. soon as I turned 18, I get checked <laughs> every two years. My <laughs> breast is checked. Every yes. two years, sometimes if I feel it, there's the little. 
my health and my body, they may be two things that are aligned together, but mm. they're not aligned with you. Right. You want to keep it moving. If you choose the body one, just be ready for a backlash because I'm always ready to throw a punch. Like I, you always I'm, I'm, be ready. I, I am so, my comebacks are so good. You come from, I'm coming right back. And the thing is, you could have something like PCOS. PCOS yeah. makes it very difficult for people that don't know polycystic ovary syndrome. Look it up. It makes it very difficult for you to lose weight. So somebody can be as thickums as thick and, you know, eating the right stuff, exercising, but because they have that, it's difficult for them to actually shed the weight. And then you're going to come in for their body and be like, oh, look at you. Exactly, exactly. And the worst part, it's like, okay, when I had the marina implanted in me, I, I like gained almost 25 kilos during that period of time. And people, oh, you're just getting fat. I'm, eh. hmm. You think I don't see myself? You think I don't know this is happening? <laughs> but all my body's trying to do is survive. Let her survive. Yeah. It's like, and as women, we go through such a, we go through so many peaks of our hormones. There's mm-hmm. certain times the month where it's fantastic. You're never even bloating. Everything is top notch. And then there's months where everything just falls and crumbles. You're yeah. not even aware of what's going on. Like your mental health affects it, the environment affects it. The just people that you're around affects how you feel and how your body reacts mm-hmm. to the world. So if my body is big at one point in my life, then let her be big in peace. <laughs> Amen. And then, like, we even put in consider- consideration, um, we're, const- we're constantly in a state of survival mode. Mm. Our bodies are used to constantly surviving. That's historically um, proven. We are constantly in a position Quite where our bodies to fat for a very long time because we don't know when next we're going to eat. Coming from a country where I survived war, and there were states where we didn't have food to eat. My body is used to that mm-hmm. context of always holding on to fat because auntie doesn't know when auntie is going to eat. And so even my mom is the same, my dad is the same, but just like my dad has a faster metabolism than the mm. rest of us. But it's like yeah. when your body has men, honestly, why does it need it? God knows. <laughs> but when your body has been in the constant state of survival mode and now you're in a context where you're meant to be safe, um, physically, but then emotionally, you're not safe. Even physically, we're not even safe here. Mm. So our body, our health is constantly in survival mode. And we are constantly trying to do things to keep ourselves safe, un- unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. But I know my body for what it is. And she's always in survival mode. She's going to do what she needs to do to protect herself at all times. Yeah. And before we go, I just want to touch on the importance of having conversations, not just intergenerationally, but also with your partners. Mm. I think the only conversations we tend to have are around fertility. Mm. And like how many times you wanted a week? Yeah. Or, oh, you gave me that STI. But you're not asking someone, do you have a genetic predisposition to this? Ah, uh, no. Sis. I think this is the only relationship I'm in. I've had that conversation where like he brought out his whole family health history. I brought out all of mine. I'm like, Mm. this is what is in my DNA that could possibly trigger something down the line. And then um, I think it's, there's this checking your X and Y chromosomes as well. Mm. And that's also important. So we've done that as well to just ensure that we don't have. Oh, wait, you can do that. Yeah. Oh, tell us, how'd you do this? 
So like, I did this when I, I went to Nigeria. That's why I got it done. We just went to a clinic in Nigeria. They did mm. the blood test. We were able to like check our Y and X chromosomes and to see if there's any like um similarities in um in like do we have any similarities with certain illnesses? So unfortunately, mm. we don't because I think sometimes your blood groups um can contribute to you having a if you're a dominant and um yes. yeah carrier for things. Yes. Yes, exactly. So all the different yeah. stuff that I never paid attention to in high school actually mm. came in handy when I was in my home. This I didn't think it was really that deep because it's not a composition I've ever had in my life. Right. So when we were having my home, okay, okay. So we did all of that and we're in the clear um, and hopefully nothing else happens down the line that may change that. But what probably know from our, both of our medical histories that we're both in the clear and we shouldn't have any issues when it comes to having children that will mm-hmm. be healthy. But at the same time, the environment that you're in can contribute to what happens to your child, the food that you eat contributes to it. So it's not just you, um, the gene or the genetics that you carry. A lot of other factors contribute to it as well. But at least it stops like those aunties that be like, oh, your wife has this and that problem or your child is like this because it's always the woman who's the carrier of all problems and apparently, sin. Apparently. <laughs> my, my husband can't have a son. It's apparently the woman's fault this whole time. So even just for your mental health, do those do that extra piece of work, check with your partner and, you know, if it's serious, if you're going down, even if it's early, I feel like because... Have at the early stage so you're not wasting your time. Exactly. <laughs> I, think, I am so happy with the generation of women. They are so ruthless and I'm enjoying it. Because yes. for so long, I know for our generation, even though we're technically still the same generations, but, but like, uh, are you trying to say I'm old? Are you I'm pretty- not saying you, I'm saying for the girls coming after us. Okay. It's like the Aggies and stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, but like for our generation, I think maybe we might have been a bit more shy to have certain conversations in our relationship. But I'm love, I love seeing this notion of African women who were just going head front telling you that let's go and get blood tested, let's go and do this and this, and this is what I expect. This is mm-hmm. what I'm, I am willing to tolerate, and this is what I'm not, um, it's not open for conversation. And they are sticking to the gut, and they're also creating like mental health plans for themselves. Oh, wow. In their oh, wow. Why was I, when all of this was happening? Why didn't this happen for our generation? Why was yeah. this information? But I think with the work that we within our own generation are doing, it's been so impactful to those coming up behind us because all the lessons and all the things we wish we would have changed, that's mm. what they've already changed. They've mm-hmm. been taking that forward. I'm, oh, I'm really happy for the next generation. Oh, and they have a support. Me. They have a support in us. So we might not have one in our parents. God, we're doing good. The next yeah. generation of African women in Australia, I think they're going to be an incredible bunch of women. Mm. And even like when we decide to have children and whatever comes out of that, like I, I am, this is the first time in a long time that I am actually looking forward to the future for black people in this country. Mm. And that's just because I think as a generation, we are choosing to make so many changes to ensure that the traumatic experiences that we've endured to get us to where we are is not passed on to our children because that's a no go. So you come for my kid, just, just put me in prison. Because I, I am not playing those games with nobody. Uh-uh. It happened no. to me as a child. It can't happen to me as an adult. We're just not doing it. It happened to my children. It's not possible. No. But before I go, I just want to ask you if you want to leave for those that are listening some tips that you think are useful, maybe from your own experiences, from something that you've heard of how as a Black woman, as a woman, 
you can be preventative about your health care, things that you can do, um, whether it's self-care or specific actions that you took yourself, like after hearing the same answer from that doctor for X amount of years, moving to another doctor, what would you suggest or what would you put forward to women out there? Um, like I said earlier, we as African people are born hustlers and born negotiators. Don't let that part of your identity leave you because that's, I think, one of our strongest attributes. If you're mm. accessing medical health from a health um, professional who is not um, satisfying what you're looking for or doesn't tick the boxes that you're looking for, do your research go through, like did said go through the bios of um these doctors and mm. go hunting for them we have so many health practitioners in in south australia australia wide go hunting for them i'm so fortunate there's so many african women now who are in these industries who are able to help and guide you along go for it mm. definitely research and ensure that when you because for me prior to me finding my current gp i had a lot of uh gp hunting and mm. i'll with each of them they just sit there just wanted to get the feel of it yeah because it's more than what the person is saying but it's how the person makes you feel in the room mm. and it was this dr rebecca is the only one that i've had who welcomed me sat me down right next to her she's like oh let's pull up your medical record let me um go up um ask you a few questions about all these things from since i was like 14 to now what wow. have you been going like we had a whole 30 minutes conversation and she does this thing where she's really she goes into details about everything so she gives all of her patients 30 to 40 minutes okay. while you're with her let's just on a quick prescription of this and that's it yeah. but if you have to go in there to get checked she's going to sit you down and have a proper in-depth conversation with you and that was what brought me peace when i met her and ever mm. since then i've and another important thing is for you to always have a conversation with your family. Please don't hesitate to ask your parents about your medical, your family's medical history, because it's important. Mm -hmm. You know, the past contributes to your present and your future. And you keep denying yourself access to that information. You're basically setting yourself up for issues and failure down the line, and you don't want that. Mm -hmm. um, another great advice is for you to always ensure you have a great network of support around you mm -hmm. um, in terms of if you're dealing with anything extremely traumatic or you're about to have an operation or God forbid you have a really bad illness. Having a good support of people around you is fundamental to you healing faster, right. one. And also provide your space for you to just vent and be vulnerable. And the best thing I can give any woman listening to this podcast right now is remove that notion and that um, pressure of yourself to cons consistently be strong. That is not your badge mm -hmm. of honor to carry. There are spaces for you to be vulnerable. There are spaces for you to cry. And there are spaces for you to feel weak. Do not carry the black woman a strong badge on your shoulders that you forget to give yourself permission to cry, permission right. for you to break. Only you can give yourself that permission. Nobody else in the world owes you that. And if you don't start giving yourself permission, you are never going to receive it anywhere else. So find places for you to cry. I mean, Didi knows I, I have um, crying schedules. <laughs> I don't cry everywhere. I have, I have a schedule for when I need to cry. And I hold it into the week my this is my crying time and i let it go there but um just ensure that you you you've created a well-being package for yourself i think i might even share that on my social media yes a well-being and wellness pack where you write down the things that you need to tick off for your own well-being and what um, brings you back to yourself oh and i love that are, if you're accessing mental health ensure that you're following your mental health um plan as well because i think a lot of times 
we're accessing mental health and we're not even listening to what our therapist is saying. She's like, why, why are you wasting government's money? They're like, just stay home. <laughs> Somebody could utilize this. And I had to learn that myself because I wasn't doing that for the first six months of my therapy. Oh, I was wow. just there like I was talking to somebody. And then she's yeah. just like, Mom, you're wasting my time if you're not mm-hmm. going to take this on board. Who are you again? Excuse me. This is your oh, job. Julia. Oh, okay. And I, that's why we have a good relationship. Because like she put, she called me out on my BS. Mm. Ever since then, after every therapy session, we set five goals for me to achieve within that month or within that fortnight. And mm-hmm. um, especially when it comes to creating boundaries and restrictions. So my big boundaries when it comes to people speaking about my body, don't do that. That is right. the trigger point. And I've been able to create a boundary that I follow up on. And also when it comes to me um, doing too much at the same time, I have enjoyed saying no to so many mm. things. Such a blessing. It's like, can you do this? No, I'm not available. And it's just every time I say no, I use that no as a opportunity for me to do some self-care. If yes. that means sleeping more, I'm going to do a whole lot of sleeping that weekend. <laughs> that's if that just means me reading a book, I'm going to do a lot of reading that weekend. But ensure that you are not overwhelming yourself and you're following the um, health plan you set for yourself because you don't want to be wasting your money all your time. No. And if I can just add, people, just don't hold on to your coins. Like, people hold on to their coins when it comes to their health. I just – and I was one of those people. Like, I, it's so weird. Like, you shortchange yourself on the thing that – that is all you have your body is all you have your mind is all you have i agree i second that notion don't don't be stingy with your health do not be stingy with it that brazilian weave that you're chasing Mm. and make you healthier that gucci bag that you want to buy so but so badly is not going to make you healthier spend money where money needs to be spent like right now the government is providing 20 free um therapy sessions for anybody who wants to access them per year wait Excuse if you're a citizen or permanent resident just put that little caveat but if you have access to that take advantage of it and even outside of my 20 sessions because i go through about almost 60 sessions a year because that's what i feel works for me and i need that and i've contributed i, I have i went ahead and got private health insurance for be able to stay sane and to be able to stay up to be the best possible co-worker that I can be and also be the best version of myself. Yeah, I totally agree. Don't shortchange your health. It is no. the only thing that you have. It is the thing that you need to actually protect and look after most importantly. Um, but yeah, thank you, Miss Nyande. I enjoyed being on here. Oh, it was a pleasure. I feel like we could talk forever about lots of different yeah, things. Yeah. <laughs> into the whole um, sex thing and how oh. we don't disclose our sexual history when we've been intimate with people without condom. Hey, how many? Yeah, how many people actually go and get an STI check before they engage in a new relationship? Hmm. Started doing that. No, I've been doing that for a while now. But then it's like, and then it's like, oh no, but like. This is a whole different conversation. <laughs> I know. I was like, don't start. <laughs> yeah, it's getting really juicy. Maybe we should do this another time. But quickly, I think, like, for those people who are sexually fluid and who are constantly bumping into people here and there, because life happens. It's happened to me. Life happens. And you go and have intimacy with somebody, and um, you, in the midst of enjoyment and alcohol, you forget to strap up. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, the next day, you're going. If it's a Monday, I ah GP. Excuse me, Doctor Rebecca. Whatever it is, I need to get tested, and then I do back to back. I don't even talk to that person afterwards. Back to back checks. Mm. I do like three months after intimacy with somebody unprotected. Three yes, because the incubation months. period for HIV is three months. People. Exactly. Three months, so three months, and I double check my. And she's like, oh. I may say your friend, oh, thank you, Jesus, Jehovah, I'm never doing that again. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, we thank the Lord for saving me for times I could not save my Wow. Because this is scary. But anyway, this becomes a hold all the time. I yes. Know, all of my business. I was <laughs> like, you were just pouring it all out there. <laughs> you have to. And I think when, you, when we get to a point where we have no shame of, about the things we've done, we get to a position where it allows for um, true, honest vulnerability within our communities, where we know that nobody's going to shame me for what I've done in my yeah. past, and that's an information for somebody else to learn from. But if we're constantly being shamed for some of our extracurricular activities, we're mm-hmm. not hindering progress so others to learn from our mistakes. So don't do what I did, yeah? Just don't yeah. do it. If you're drunk, go home. Don't do it. <laughs> don't let it confuse Do what I say, not what I did. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you, my love. Thank you for being on this episode. Thank you for talking with us and sharing your personal experiences. Thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for having me, Dalisa. This has been wonderful. This has been wonderful. Hey, my whole government thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much. And the others to follow. Yes. We'll definitely bring you back. Definitely. Well, thank you guys for listening and share some comments. Um, Mama Sue said she's going to share her mental health care plan. No, see. Tell, what did you say? Mental health care plan. Yeah. Well-being care plan. Well-being care plan. That's it. So oh, I'm thinking. Well, care plan is too complex for the internet right now. Yeah, fair enough. And you're not a psychologist, so you can't even. <laughs> So she's going to share that and I'm going to link her socials and yeah, guys, especially to our black sisters out there, just be vulnerable, allow yourself to look after yourself the way that you deserve to and don't let society, other people, culture dictate, you know, how you look after yourself. All right. Thank you guys and tune in next time. Bye.